people have looked at HPC, it's kind of an elitist occupation of minor, small group of people. And I wanted to show that HPC has a real impact, almost immediate impact and sometime long-term impact on what happens to people in everyday life. Supercomputing or HPC have moved in faster than even the fastest moving technology that we encounter in our life, which is Moore's Law. From Orion X, in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen, it's great to be with you again. Excellent to be here, and I am truly excited about this session. Yes, we have a really special guest, David Barkai, a 50-year veteran of the HPC community, who has come out with a new book this month called Unmatched on the extraordinary progress of supercomputing over the past half century and the view that HPC, and I like this quote, is a powerful demonstration of our, meaning humanities, relentless drive to understand and shape the world around us. David entered the field, entered HPC shortly after receiving a PhD in theoretical physics, and has focused on relationships between applications and architectures. He served at several technology companies during their heydays, such as Control Data, Floating Point Systems, Cray Research, SGI, and others, along with stints at NASA Ames and Intel. Unmatched, the book, is broken up into five decade-long epochs defined by the system architectural themes of vector processors, multiprocessors, microprocessors, clusters and accelerators, and cloud computing. The final part of the book examines key issues of HPC and discusses where it might all be headed. So, David, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay. So, please tell us about the book. Give us an overview, if you would, and tell us about how it captures your unique vision of HPC and your view of the field. Sure. So, when I finished my professional life at HPC, I sat down and I thought that a lot have been covered. I was fortunate to be at the crossroad of several transitions and at several companies and, and witness to some of the things that happened in HPC over the last almost 50 years or so. And looking for something interesting to do, I thought I'll try to capture it. And as Doug mentioned, what I did there was to try to maybe somewhat oversimplistically, but I think I think more or less okay to break what's happened in supercomputing into manageable pieces by looking at the architecture and changes that happened. And that's where are the five the five type of a uh, periods that happened. I cut it into an exact ten year period. Of course, it's not exact. Mm-hmm. The overlap and it's a little more uh, muddy. In in transitions and not everything is clear-cut. It wasn't a deliberate decision of people to move from one phase to another. It was a process and the market played a role in it and so on. So I wanted to look at what's happened to HPC because there are a lot of lessons from it and features that keep coming back that people are using today on one hand. On the other hand, people have looked at HPC as kind of an elitist occupation of a minor, small group of people. And I wanted to show that HPC has a real impact, almost immediate impact and sometimes long-term impact on what happens to people in everyday life. So I also followed some application areas as they evolve 
through the years in how, as with the evolution of HPC systems, the benefit from it is getting greater and greater to society and to everyday life. I follow architecture, get together with architectures and see how it changes over the years. In particular, I should mention that I think that what happened in the last 10 years was a even greater changes than previously in the sense that HPC world has expanded to include new applications in new sets of people and the community really seems to be growing both technologically and socially and in terms of numbers. David, you called the book Unmatched. Would you take us through the thought process on how you decided the title of the book? Yeah, the subtitle of the book is 50 Years of Supercomputing. But I think it's important that I start with Unmatched. I wanted to put into the idea that supercomputing or HPC have moved in faster than even the fastest moving technology that we encounter in our life, which is Moore's Law. So Moore's Law is, is an exponential rate of advancement of semiconductor industry in terms of density of components, but also more or less in terms of performance of a single chip. And I compare it. So Moore's Law will tell us that you double the, the density, almost the performance every two years. And I try to look back at what happens to top HPC systems. And I noted, I look at some kind of milestones. When we reached the first gig flop system, which was early 80s. The teraflop system was mid-90s, 96. Then petaflop at night 2008. And then 2020, more or less exascale. It's debatable, but that's a 2020 to 2022 reached that. And it looks like a cycle in about every 12 years, HPC systems, the top of them, advance by a factor of 1,000. Now look back and think about Moore's Law. Mm. Every 12 years, you have six cycles of Moore's Law, which gives you a factor of 64. So the HPC system potential performance is increasing 15 times faster than Moore's law. That's the reason that I think it's moving faster than any other industry enterprise in recent history. So I called it unmatched. Excellent. Yeah. And another of your comments is that over the last 40 years, HPC has outpaced technology advances like Moore's law by more than 9,500 times. So this notion of thousandfold increase every 12 years, I think that needs a law name like Barkai's law, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Friendly suggestion. (laughs) It's amazing. It's the sector of the technology industry where can we say the most innovation is going on constantly because of the insatiable demand for higher and higher performance. Yeah, there is another a uh, very good a kind of comment that I put someplace I wanted to show you to indicate people don't think about it. Look at the recent system, Frontier at Oak Ridge. A, post, a node in Frontier is 150 teraflop with the yes. GPUs, the power of it. I'm looking further into the past when ASCII Red was built in '96, was the first teraflop machine. It had 76 cabinets <laughs> that were a single teraflop. Now a single node on Frontier is 150 teraflop. The difference, the node to node comparison, is 700,000 times increase in 25 years. Wow, that's some number to think about. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. 
Well, I can't resist asking you. I mean, we've seen over the last eight years or so the slowdown in Moore's Law. Is there going to be a slowdown in this thousandfold increase every 12 years kind of law? Or are we going to keep introducing new paradigms such as, say, quantum that'll enter the picture? That sounds like the next book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's true. My, my focus is on the past, but, but I conclude with some thinking of, of some of the couple of leaders about where we're going. But the answer is that I think that we are entering a period of uh, some level of uncertainty as to where technology is going. I think we settled on the expansion of the scope of application of HPC to include, but also it may go in ways that we haven't envisioned yet, with the including of data driven applications less than numerics in AI, of course, which itself may be that kind of a new application that pushed to new processor technologies that we haven't had before. For example, the idea that we're going to lower precision, the strive in HPC was always get more higher precision for computations. Now we have a different trend going to lower and lower precision of words because it's not needed for AI. So the mix of numerics and AI to Doug's question will add another kind of different vector of complexity. The mix of processors and computation types that includes in a single system. So in addition, I talk about the, the complexity of parallelism, which has multiple layers. If you think about it, that's also very important. It's not just dividing it into equal pieces. Now we need to think of parallelism as within the core threading. Within the core also there is vector instructions and then multiple cores and then multiple processors on the node and then multiple nodes. And when you design applications now, we don't talk about efficient algorithm as the one that minimizes the number of operations, mm-hmm. but we think in terms of one that can be distributed more effectively. You don't care about computations in the number of, of arithmetic operations anymore. In fact, it's a lot cheaper to compute a number than to transmit it to all the nodes. So you touch compute it again. So the whole way of thinking about algorithmic efficiency is changing or has changed over the last few decades, but it's more so now with the addition of different types of computation within the single application. So David, this is a good segue into maybe you can take us through how we got here. As Doug mentioned, your book is very nicely divided into six parts with five epochs and then a chapter on Outlook. Would you highlight from each of these periods something that is noteworthy that people should go study and read about? Sure. I start with the 70s and vector processors. And of course, that follows what we used to know before as mainframes for commercial use and something for computations. And I emphasize that vectorization had several ideas that are still with us now, in particular, the later foundations for parallelization as we know it now. The first idea is that when the way computers started, a lot of time was wasted waiting. To do in arithmetic, the idea was to compute numbers. Uh, It was quick to do, but the data waiting to load and store and move data, that was the most time consuming. So the idea that there is inefficient time spent on computer systems that sits and not doing arithmetic. The second idea was that if we have multiple functional units in the chip, add and multiply and logical operation, why operate just a single unit at a time? You can try to do more. 
The third idea was that in an application, the operations that can be done independently of each other, the unrelated. But then we expressed the idea that most computations are expressed in terms of arrays. So let's have instructions that relate to arrays. And the simple one was the array of dimension one, which is a vector. Mm. And then finally also to make it all possible, the idea that instructions may take more than one cycle. But if we can build hardware that where we break the instruction into a single cycle pipes, into pipeline of like assembly line as a pipeline with a single instruction, put all this together and we get the idea of vectorization. Now we all know that the first commercially successful vector processor was the Cray-1 released in 76. But as with anything else, there's always some early experiments that drove the way. In fact, there were two other vector processors that were released before the Cray-1, which controlled data star 100 in 73. Maybe little unknown, the Texas Instrument had mm. a supercomputer called ASC, Advanced Scientific Computer, that also was released in 73. They just built seven systems. But they were kind of the forthcoming. And why I mention it, because as part of the approach, the two unsuccessful one had single instruction from memory to memory. That is memory processing and back to memory, single instruction. A Cray designed it, we broke it down and introduced vector registers. So you can do very similar to sequential, load a operands, process and store. And that turns out to be the most successful implementation. So as with any other transition, there was experimentations and then there was a convergence on a more successful solution. So vectorization led the foundation to parallelization because the idea of doing independent operations at the same time. Of mm -hmm. course, vector was pipeline, but you can easily extend it to why do it one after another if it's independent, do it at the same time. We move to uh, the next period of multiprocessing that took this level of vectorization, and now we have another level of breaking it down to a big chunks that called the macro parallelism. If vector is fine grain, then multiprocessing is a coarse-grained parallelization. So we're talking about the 80s where we start having multiple processors. The Cray XMP was the one, and then the Cray 2, and then the YMP. At the same period, an idea that Shaheen was pretty close to it was the attached processor. So there was another way of trying to get more computations done with less hardware or with a more efficient hardware was to do a more special purpose idea of processing. So we had this attached processors in multiprocessing in the 80s. Towards the end of the 80s, there was another begin of very big transition where we had multiple of companies that took two different directions. There was the many supercomputer companies that took the idea of big iron vector processor and trying to use a cooler technology, slower technology, but doing more of the MP part, the multiprocessor part, on a smaller scale. So we had a Convex and, and Alliant and various other companies, Supertech and so on, that created miniaturized supercomputers and they're still becoming economically on paper or they were successful because, for example, you could have a performance that maybe is three to five times less than the Cray of the time, but the price was 10 times less. So it became a more, more economically uh, mm -hmm. viable. 
The other direction was to start with a not not to start by imitating the big uh, big processor, but to start with the lower end of taking a processor that started off being for personal computer. It became a 32-bit processing came out in the late 80s, and to take a microprocessor and build many more of that. So increase the level of parallelism, but not imitating the big vector supercomputers. And that was the MPP thinking machine. And kind of this period slides into the early 90s, where, you know, the first list of the top 500 list was in June of 93. The top four systems there were not Craze. There was CM5. That's right. The top first is there was another CM5 in the top 10. So that was the period that the MPP showed up and then it faded away. So we entered the 90s where the MPP really broke the way in showing that microprocessors can be used to produce high-end systems. And then went into commodity part and x86. The smaller companies that led the way and did all the experimentation, most of them went away. And we began to have the idea that the big volume microprocessor is the basis for producing that. There was another trend that started that way. And I talk about it more in beyond the 2000, but it started in the 90s, which was dissemination of the silo culture of production. Uh, producing systems. It became, uh, at about at that time, for example, Cray uh, all of a sudden realized that the cost of software development for their in-house operating system was as high as developing hardware. And there was Unix out there. So they adopted a more a community-based software, standard software, began the process of standardization in the sense that there were more common components that used the cost vendors. Start operating system and then the, the processor itself. And when we started creating system, which are not the tight MPP, but clusters and that began in the 90s, then we also talked about similar network, factory, and it became to be provider. And as we slide into somewhere, and just as I mentioned, the CM5 were the first top system, the MPP, when we get the first uh, teraflop system, it was again, not a big vector processor, but it was x86 system, the Ascurate from Intel. So that's what the kind of microprocessors entered the scene. When we got into into the 2000, these things expanded into being a almost a single type of architecture, which was a cluster. Mm. We got into the sense where from any vendor, you'd get a rack, a cabinet, where you stack some nodes, and each node would have two processors in local memory, and it was tied together with some factory network, be it in Ethernet or InfiniBand, and that was a system. So what an end-to-end, end-to-end first Unix, and then Linux. Then they all ran some variants of the same operating system. So it was open source, community software based, similar type. Almost everything became kind of standardized and differentiation between vendors became more difficult. So that kind of what typifies, the, I think, the years. It became apparent in the year after 2000, 2010, give or take. We're getting into the petaflop system. What was the teraflop system? was more or less um, a basis or not very dissimilar from the clusters that followed. What happened with the petaflop system, at least the first one, was almost a one-off, was the roadrunner at Los Alamos. Mm-hmm. 
So it was a, I almost disregard it, even though it was the first petaflop system, because what follows was other petaflop system that didn't look anything like it. When we talk about, uh, I think it was Jaguar at, at Oak Ridge after that, that still looked more like a very big, tightly coupled cluster. In the last, beyond 2010, if we go up to the last 10, 12 years, also became a very big change in HPC, not so much in terms of architecture, because in contrast, and I've talked about planning session when people was trying to plan for the petaflop in, in the mid-90s and then plan for exascale in the late from 2009 to 2011. And there were several meetings. We talked about it, about how to people predict it and how successful they were. The one thing that people missed out in that was that every time they thought that the next thousand processors will require a fundamental change to the way we think about programming. Mm -hmm. And every time it turns out we can expand and continue to use MPI and the same idea, and it just scaled and continued to scale. And both times, also people completely missed out the role of attached processor accelerators into the final system. We call them GPUs now. Yeah, well, when people talked about exascale, they didn't figure out. They figure out they'll have like order of magnitude mm. small nodes because they didn't figure out that each node can be supported by so many GPUs. They'll give each one to tau. And it turns out it's another interest. By the way, interesting observation: teraflop system have just under ten thousand nodes. The the ASCII red mm -hmm. frontier ten thousand nodes. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it kept the number of nodes kept steady, which made it better for system maintenance. There's less components that can break down, and the more, even though each node was more complex. And I call it the return of the fat node. Right. It's very different than in the past. Fat node was a node which has four or eight processors, identical processor. Fat node now is where you. You have a, a single host or one or two hosts, but more accelerators. But still yet, it's a fat node because, and even it's not, the memory part is a little different, of course. There is the shared memory of the node, and then there is the memory that sits on each accelerator. So it's a little different, more complex. Again, another angle uh, vector of, of complexity that was added. Right. So, so in addition to, uh, to the things that didn't change much when the last 10 years on architecture, because we expanded the notion of cluster and make it in accelerators. But the big changes in the last 10 years was what HPC is. And we got started off with data analytics and expanded to AI methods that expanded the scope of both applications that were not numerics that entered the use of HPC systems because they required the scale and the features. And HPC, traditional HPC applications that began to use more of data science in AI methods. In, as part of the simulation of a physical system. Really interesting. In the opening of your book, you do say the secret sauce of HPC is this notion of complexity. And that means more processors working in tandem, accelerators, hierarchical memory, and so forth. And it just keeps going. I assume now this whole notion of chiplets is the embodiment of 
complexity. Yeah, I think one of the things that to talk at the end of the book as to where things are going is the notion of chiplets in terms of building up the, uh, the more targeted uh, use of systems so that another it adds complexity to that. Yeah. And David, I love this comment you made. Just so in reference to your notion of epochs roughly divided into decades, you say just like epochs in the history of the earth, the end of a supercomputing epoch is accompanied by a massive extinction event of old technologies. Yet, <laughs> that's beautifully stated, I have to say. But at the same time, you're seeing the recurrence or recycling of older ideas as well. Where do you see that in play? Yeah, that was one of the interesting kind of themes that I looked when I looked back at the years of supercomputing was to see, so we moved on from things, what do we keep and, and what we throw away? And the idea that learning from the past keep coming back and I looked at it as uh, several areas, uh, kind of obvious areas, and people can find others. But looked at vectorization, vector instructions. They were the uh, the way to get performance in 70s and into the late 80s, and then faded away in the 90s, where people just use microprocessors to build clusters. And then it turns out that with the advance of Moore's law, with more gates in the chip, people began to introduce again vector instructions into the chip in addition to the other level of distributed memory parallelism that we have. So vector instructions and idea of adapting applications so that uh, vectors can be exposed to compilers, to libraries, and so on, keep coming back. People went back to the same ideas. In the old days, one of the old vector processors had a an instruction called gather-scatter instruction that will help the vectorization where it wasn't a consecutive elements. Even that, uh, the gather instruction went back into by Intel into uh, the Xeon uh, processors in late years in some forms. Other things that, that happened in that came back was the idea in the 80s we talked about a attached processors as a way of that, that, by the way, came from signal processing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can be started off by having special processor for special purpose outside of the traditional realm of, of HPC even. And then it said, well, you can do floating point operations. So why not use it for numerical simulations? It add up. Uh, it was prevalent in the, it was several attempts in the 80s. And then it disappeared. And then mostly through NVIDIA came back in the form of GPUs. And now they are the main compute force in the top systems in the world now. With mm-hmm. Exception of Fugago, but the US made system frontiers and uh, the upcoming Aurora dominated computations are, I don't know, 90% of that power is could that come from accelerators. Mm-hmm. So that's came back in a big way. Whether it's going to stay forever, it's unclear. But I, I should add that it looks like when we talk about whatever use can make of quantum computings, it'll probably be in the form of accelerator. So it yeah. could even be an increased level of computations due to accelerators. Little things like there was an uh, experimentation in very long instruction board, VLIW. There are several implementations like Multiflow and others in in the 80s. And it wasn't, and and by the way, it came back twice. (laughs) Okay. Yes. One one time, uh, the second time, so it was in late 80s, it went away. Then maybe people don't realize the Intel Itanium was actually a VLIW. It had an instruction package of three instructions. We all know said before it became Itanium. Yeah, we all know what happened to Itanium. But I, I talk about some spectacular failures in HPC. It's one example. 
example. So it came back again, but now we also see some variant of VLRW in the way the GPUs are being used, in the way they are constructed to allow for for multiple instructions within the chunks of, of GPUs. So it came back. I should point out there's another little instruction, single instruction that our intelligence communities wanted control data and create to implement, which counted the, the number of bits set in the world. It was the pop count, a population count of how many bits in the world are one and not. It has some special a very useful uh, implementation in uh, encryption and uh, decoding uh, text that uh, being encrypted. And that was the reason I asked. It turns out it's come and so it was in that early 70s, 80s supercomputers. Then it, I think it was forgotten for a while. But now we see the same instruction being useful in different applications. So it's come back. The idea that there was an instruction was discovered or thought of by somebody and brought it back. To, uh, and it makes use in neural networks, applications, in error checking, even compiler optimizations, and so on. So things keep coming back. Yeah, definitely. For I think at least for complex conditionals, you could streamline it with a pop count. So David, in addition to history repeating itself, and you had some excellent examples, you also mentioned how the supercomputing community went to Unix pretty quickly. We also talked about multiprocessors, if I'm not mistaken. Cray XMP was one of the very early multiprocessors out there. Maybe the IBM 3081 was about the same time, or I don't know whether CDC had one, but it was anyway one of the early ones. Would you speak to the early adopter nature of HPC? Right. How yeah, yeah. it stays on the leading edge? So there's a lot of stuff in the book there, but one of the things I keep coming back that whenever we talk about the first successful commercial something Thing, there's always some early attempt to doing it. Uh, we talk about multiprocessors. The XMP was not the first one. And I give the example of, I think it's very little known, that even in the 60s, Control Data built a CDC 6500. Mm. It had two processors. And it wasn't supposed to do for pilot processing, but just to submit two independent jobs in two processors in a single system. But it built that. Then Fleet Numerical, Fleet Numerical in, in Monterey, bought a CDC-6500, and then bought a second one. So they connected the two systems, and they actually they had to modify the operating system so that they can communicate between, between the systems and between processors within the system. So they had two chunks of memory on two different 6500 and four processors together, and they actually developed a weather model that ran on four processors in 1970. Wow. Very little known. So it's a, the way we do parallel processing now, it's nothing like what they had to do. Uh, it's not a modification of operating system. We use, ended up doing MPI libraries, uh, but uh, we use the same, the same kind of ideas that you need to find locations in the remote memory and, and move it back and send and receive. So there was an early experimentation. When we talked about MPP, and I, I mentioned the late 90s, in fact, there was the ILIAC-4 and the University of Illinois, also yeah. around, around 1970. It had 64 processors in it, each one, and there was 64-bit processors. 
There's an interesting story about that, by the way. Mm-hmm. It was in 1970 in the midst of the Vietnam War. And it, it's called ILIAC, stands for Illinois Integrator Compute. Arithmetic Computer or something. Automatic Automatic. Computer. There is a mistake in the book. I missed out the word integrator for the I. Uh-huh. But he caught one error in the book. The system was installed in 1970, but there was unrest on campus. So they moved it to NASA M to a more secure environment, and it lived there happily for a few years. <laughs> Interesting. Now, David, I know you're interested in more than just the technology here. You're very focused also on the applications and the impact of HPC applications on our everyday life. I know of, in my experience, when COVID hit in 2020 and work began immediately on a vaccine, and I was receiving the literature from the labs and other organizations, companies, I was very confident, contrary to what a lot of other people were saying, that we would have a vaccine within six to eight months. And we did. And to me, I've said this to Shaheen several times, but to me, HPC supercomputing was the unsung hero of COVID. But I'm curious about that experience from your perspective, but also if there have been other particularly impressive accomplishments achieved on the application side, the workload side with supercomputing that you talk about in your book. Yeah. So I chose to follow several areas. Well, one is basic science, so let's not count it for everyday life, but weather, climate, and life science and engineering. Of course, I'm not talking about oil and gas in particular, but it's also very helpful there, of course. What what I say is, is how HPC is helpful in things. Boeing, for example, had in the in the mid nineties the seven 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 was the first airplane that was completely digitally simulated. It didn't exclude having to do the test, the actual air test before it was certified, but it was a completely. It saved a lot of building mockups and so on. In the car industry, we always talk about crash analysis. They used to have to build, I don't know, multiple 10, 20 or more cars and run them into the wall to test the strength of the structure and so on. By doing the the simulations, you know, the safety to only to a single run at the end to verify the computations. So it saves not just cost, but it saves a lot of time. In life science, we people talk a lot about the drug discovery. So instead of doing to the lab and mixing materials and seeing what happens, they do likelihood of a successful drug, and that includes the your comment about the coronavirus. You need to see a particular chemical compound that does what you want to do, but also that can be captured by the cells in the right way, the, the receptors. And the experimentation would have taken a long time and a lot of trial and errors. When you do the numerical computations, they didn't get immediately the final answer, but they got the likely places to do. And they limited down very quickly the possible solutions and then got the right one in a couple of different variants of that. Sometimes there is more than one solution. So the, the HPC helps in narrow down and then doing it. The other thing HPC does is doing experiments that are not possible in the lab. Think of black holes in the universe. Mm. Right. In the large scale and in the small scale, you know, the atomic structure. So we're doing that one. At the end, I'm showing a weather and climate benefits. And there is there is a long list of applications that came out from weather modeling of real life application that go to water management, severe weather warning, and so on. In particular, severe manners 
you think about the hurricane, the prediction, and how getting more accurate time and location of landfall, for example, that uh, impacts evacuations and planning and supply and whatnot, that somebody, it's very difficult to work the numbers, but it estimated in hundreds of millions of dollars each time that you can narrow down the, uh, the possible landfall from several hundred miles into 10 or 20 mile range, for example. The, the impact of FCC, actually there's some numerics on that. IDC, now Hyperion, did some studies and had a model that shows it. And they came up with figures like, you know, the ROI. So what they do, oh, they, yes. they interview a lot of companies and then they create an economic model. And I don't know how accurate it is. They figure that uh, they get an ROI of $356 for each dollar investment invested with includes $38 of uh, profit over a dollar invested. When you add HPC to the enterprise, kind of on average, it takes under two years before you see positive positive returns. It helps creating. It doesn't take away jobs. It creates jobs, actually, turns out. So there are many examples of that, for different uh, ideas that I point out here from the studies. But it's very difficult. People didn't, for some reason, they haven't, uh, the government is not tracking the return on investment. And there is, I don't know of any other place. There was a study in the early 90s uh, that they didn't uh, quantify so much as just give kind of story examples of where it's, it is helpful. Yeah, we're seeing that also with quantum computing and governments are using these economic benefits in addition to national competitiveness as a way of justifying their investments. This has been excellent, David, really wonderful. I am so delighted that you wrote this book. This was so needed in this industry and it covers a good number of decades and really sets the ground for the future edition, if I can sort of <laughs> compel you to. <laughs> Demands to continue sequel. the process. That's right. That's right. I can see the movie rights and the miniseries and all. <laughs> well, the truth Very is you try to cover a lot, a lot of material and you can hone in on some more limited aspects and expand on it. The other thing I have to admit that I've used my personal career history here and there, and I may have omitted important parts, which maybe I wasn't aware of. I've, I've talked to other people who filled in some of the gaps, but I don't pretend that it is an exhaustive history of supercomputing. Mm -hmm. it kind of, if you think about it as a layer of pancakes, I cut cut through from the bottom to the top and, and go, <laughs> sideways, go sideways here and there, but not in every every period has a breath to it and and it cannot I have to try to get through the essentials and not every detail here. yes yes very much tremendous all right well we've been with david barkai thanks so much for your time and we'd love to have you back again thank you very much i enjoyed thank it thank you david take care that's it for this episode of the at hpc podcast Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC Podcast is a production of OrionX in association with InsideHPC. Thank you for listening.